Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning, and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia, our region and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Bessel, and I'm here as always with my amazing co-host, Anagreta Hunter. Anagreta, hi. Uh, Sharon, it's great to be with you again today. I'm so looking forward to today's conversation. Over the last few episodes, we've talked about reimagining public policy and we've heard what sorts of things need to change, what can change if we think creatively, and particularly what can change if we put people and care at the centre. Today, we're continuing with our theme of imagination, but we're thinking about the power of imagination very broadly, how we can reimagine our communities, how we reimagine our lives so that work takes a back seat to play and fun for adults and for children, how we can allow imaginations to take flight and to lead us towards creativity and innovation needed in a world facing multiple crises. We're going to ramp up imagination. This is a special discussion, a discussion which actually began with a holiday reading suggestion from one of our podcast regulars, Dr Millie Rooney, from Australia Remade at the end of last year. Sharon, would you like to introduce our guest? I would love to. Rob Hopkins is co-founder of Transition Town Totnes and also co-founder of the Transition Network. He's authored a number of books, including From What Is to What If, Unleashing the Power of Imagination to Create the Future We Want. And that's a book that we'll talk a bit about today. But but Rob's authored many books. He also holds a doctorate degree from the University of Plymouth and has received no fewer than two honorary doctorates, one from the University of West England and one from the University of Namor. And Rob also co-hosts his own podcast, From What If to What Next. Rob, welcome to Policy Forum Pod. It's great to have you with us. Hey, thank you so much. It's lovely to be here with you all. Rob, as we start today's conversation, my mind is, of course, back to my visit earlier this year to Totnes, the village on the coast of Devon where you live and where you and I walked along the river, exploring the remarkable local community, looking at the social infrastructure. And I remember particularly the small dual turbine hydroelectricity supply for the town, an extraordinary find on a river. For our listeners, I wonder if you might start by telling us a little bit about Totnes, why you moved there, and about the transition town movement that started there. Sure. Well, uh, hi, everybody. Yeah, Totnes is a town in the southwest of England, in Devon, 
Uh, it is a, has a population of about 9,000 people. Uh, it's a very beautiful place. It has a lot of old Elizabethan buildings in it. Um, and I think what's always been interesting to me about it is, is it's one of, I think, maybe six or seven places in the UK that you might think of as being like laboratory towns, like places where they are, there's a culture of sort of tolerance and it's also attracted over the years some more kind of cre culturally creative people, I guess. And it's a place where people experiment with things in a way that is not sort of shut down so it's a place where since the 1920s there's been all kinds of different experiments that have gone on in terms of culture and economy and environment and the very first vegetable box scheme in the uk started in totnes um it's the it's so 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 when i was i had been living in ireland before and had then been planning to move back to the uk with my family and was looking for somewhere where we could maybe start things moving quicker where you didn't necessarily have to explain everything from scratch and uh, I ended up coming to Totnes because I was living in Ireland teaching this permaculture course there and we were doing a project in the in the grounds of the college where we were building with the students a theatre for the drama course to perform in and I wanted to find some really I wanted to get the sculpture students in the college to make gargoyles that we could put around the roof and the church in Totnes has particularly magnificent gargoyles and so I came to Totnes to take just to take photos of these gargoyles and while I was there I thought I could live here and so we moved here 2005 uh, I met some people who were interested in the same questions i guess like what would a community-led response to the climate emergency look like we started showing films and giving talks and networking people together and then in september 2006 we had what we called the official unleashing of transition town totnes uh which was a big event that then launched transition within totnes but already at that event there were people there from six or seven other places who had somehow heard about it and then it just took off a bit like wildfire really Rob, I absolutely love the idea of a gargoyle-led transition. I think that's <laughs> a very special thing. <laughs> yeah, we, if we haven't got the gargoyles on our side, we've got no chance. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We all need to remember that. <laughs> um, Rob, perhaps we could take a step back and talk about the broader context for today's conversation about creativity and imagination and the broader yeah. context for the work that you're doing around transition. And I was really struck when I read some of your work and you talked about, I think it's one in three or two thirds of, of people in the UK being incredibly stressed. And when I followed up around that, I, I found, I came across a 2018 report by the Mental Health Foundation, which is a UK charity, um, which published the results of, its, of a survey it undertook with 4,600 people across the UK. And that survey found that two-thirds of people reported being stressed to the point of being overwhelmed. And that's similar to other studies in the UK and to other studies in a, a number of, of wealthy countries. Rob, what is it about the nature of our societies that's led us to this place where people are suffering from such incredibly high levels of stress? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question. And I, th I think, I mean, the reason why why it troubled me in the context of the book that I was writing was that the bigger context, of course, is that we are in a climate and ecological emergency. 
we are uh, we are seeing we're seeing this summer as we have every previous summer but this summer you know we're recording this just after horrific fires in hawaii that looked like somebody dropped a nuclear bomb on the place uh, scientists are talking about the the um uh, the current the amok current that is uh, you know a great sort of circulating current that moves around the world that keeps europe something like eight degrees warmer than it would otherwise be that they've been talking about maybe there being some risks to it in 2050 or later and now saying it could even be looking at that closing down in 2025 you know this is this is the most profoundly pressing urgent thing and we still live with governments who talk about net zero by 2050 which is far too late nowhere near ambitious enough uh just lamentably awful and so so for me the driver for all of this is to say that we need to be responding to the climate emergency with with the willingness to reimagine everything because it because it's it's a crisis that demands that we reimagine fundamentally how we do food education transport everything energy the whole the whole thing and what fascinated me when i started researching the book was that you know the imagination needs certain conditions to be in place we in order for people to have that imagination muscle well exercised and familiar and able to do that kind of heavy lifting of really reimagining things it needs to be in a good state and we know that when people are stressed when people are overwhelmed that part of our brain the hippocampus which is where our imagination and our memory both fire from shrinks when we have cortisol in our system people who have post-traumatic stress disorder have a hippocampus 20 percent smaller than it would otherwise be and and i feel like through austerity economics which have been imposed in this country for the last 13 years through widening inequality through just the sort of constant hysterical news sort of cycle about about everything you know we've we've created the the conditions i think it's like we we've, we've built a kind of a cortisol economy where more and more people are in that precariat uh, of not being able to having to choose whether they feed their children or heat their home if they can even find a home or afford to, or, or afford a home so for me it's it's obviously it's it's important on a kind of personal and a social level but in the wider context at a time when we fundamentally have to reimagine everything we've created the worst possible conditions for the human imagination what one person i interviewed for the book referred to as a disimagination machine we kind of live in this perfect storm of factors that are deeply damaging to the human imagination at the worst possible time and and, and i think that's really really dangerous Rob, they're really startling statistics and the framework is so important, I think, as we contend with growing and not decreasing threats, particularly to do with climate change. I'm sure for our local listeners here in Australia, so much of what you've just described resonates and we know that in Australia more than 20% of the Australian population was diagnosed with a mental health condition in the last 12 months and so anxiety and depression are common in our community uh, and the causes I think you've just described so nicely, that phrase, the cortisol economy, is one I will adopt. In your book, you've posed the question, what do these troubling statistics and the tangled mix of economic, social and emotional problems have to do with imagination? How can imagination help us to solve some of the very complex problems in the societies around the world that we're facing at the moment? Why is imagination so important? Well, the great bell hooks, the writer, she said, what we cannot imagine cannot come into being. 
the other quote that I, that I seem to be using a lot at the moment is by Don DeLillo, the novelist, who said, longing on a large scale is what makes history. And uh, which is just such a beautiful quote, I think. It gave me goosebumps, I think, when I first heard it. You know, it's like we we know that that the the economic model that we have at the moment is is completely insane for the times that we're in. You know, we have this massive urgency to reduce carbon. So we can either see that as some kind of a massive imposition and something, you know, you hear people hear all the time, it's very well-funded pushback at the moment against zero carbon initiatives all around the world. You see it in the US, you see it in the UK, all this sort of arguments of, well, you know, this, well, the science isn't proven. Science was proven 20 years ago. Well, you know, uh, it'll be too expensive. It's not as expensive as not doing anything, all those sorts of things. So what I try to, to say to people is we're, we're only going to do this if if the stories that we can tell about where we're going are so enticing and delicious and extraordinary that of course we're going to do that. This is about longing. You know, I see so many, in the 1960s, we had politicians who talked about longing. We had Martin Luther King. We had Bobby Kennedy who talked about, I have a dream. I, you know, I, I'm going to fill the future with visions that we're going to run towards. Now we seem to have mostly politicians who just talk in terms of little incremental steps. Uh, we'll change this. We'll change this tax code. We'll do this. You know, we, I, I get to visit in the work that I do through being part of the transition movement, particularly actually in the French-speaking world at the moment where there's some amazing things going on. Cities who are fundamentally reimagining their food system, for example. The city of Liège in Belgium are in the middle of the most extraordinary project of completely rethinking the food system of that city from the ground up, building a food belt, what they call a food belt around that city and a whole new economy. And that model is now spreading very quickly. I went to Utrecht in Holland where... Uh, the bicycle rush hour really is something that you have to see, has to be seen to believe. 33,000 bicycles cycle into the center of Utrecht every day because they have built the infrastructure for that to happen based on the understanding that every year, if they spend half a billion euros on cycling infrastructure, it saves them 38 billion euros off the national health bill. You know, so it's not like we're in a situation where the problem isn't that we don't have the solutions. We're not waiting for someone to invent some magical thing. We know everything we have to do and everything we have to, we know we have to do already exists and is working somewhere. You know, the future of our cities needs to look like the sort of urban reforestation of Barcelona, the, the cycling infrastructure of Rotterdam, the food system of Liège, uh, the, et cetera, et cetera. You know, everything is already there. What's missing is is the longing is the desire is the sort of that that's what makes this stuff kind of inevitable and so for me you know i always say we can't do this without storytellers artists street artists scriptwriters etc etc because those are the people in our culture who cultivate longing is novelists and writers and this idea that somehow climate activists are just going to be able to do this on their own just by talking about extinction and collapse all the time then i think we're, we're really really kidding ourselves we have to make something so delicious that we have something to run towards rather than just imagine that we'll do this by by scaring the bejesus out of everybody 
Oh, I, I just love the language, the enticing stories that create an environment of longing and, and really do inspire hope. You've, you've given us such a compelling argument for the creative arts in, in significant and rapid transition that's needed, but you've also written about play. What's the role of play in the lives of both children and adults as we're making changes in our lives? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, writing that book, there was a lot of research that went into it. Every time I have to update my understanding of, of climate science is always a very uh, uh, chastening and depressing thing. Actually, doing the research for that chapter about play was almost as, as, as terrifying, actually. The, like the decline of play in our culture over the last 50 years was really, really sobering. And what happens, you know, I, I think when when children grow up and when i say play i don't mean like playing football or you know it's 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 that kind of what people call kind of unstructured play free play that sort of let's pretend what if kind of play that that you know we all had when much more of when we were younger you know children today often are very much what do they call them helicopter parenting or something you know where kids are like ferried from this to that to class to this that and it's all very structured and they don't get time to be bored you know boredom is a fundamentally important part of of growing up and of being a human being because you have to learn how to how to entertain yourself and what to do with that time the science about what happens when children don't play uh, and the mental impacts that that has on kids is is really really troubling, and so so for me I'm I'm always looking at at how do we bring how do we bring play back into our society into the activism that we do. Uh, so anyone who's ever been on workshops with me knows that we spend half of that time playing uh, and trying to get adults back into playing and be, and being more playful. There was an amazing guy who I write about in the book who was the mayor of Bogota in Colombia, a guy called Antanas Mokas, who believed that play and politics should be completely intertwined. And uh, he said that one of the ways that we should measure the well-being of our cities, a key well-being indicator, should be the number of children playing in the street. And when he was elected as the mayor of Bogota, which had the highest death rates on the roads in the, in the city and the notoriously corrupt traffic police, he famously sacked the entire traffic police department and instead hired 400 mime artists who stood on the main intersections dressed up like as mime artists who had a red card and a yellow card like football referees and, and sort of playfully managed the traffic in a way that, that cut deaths on the road by about 50%. So I feel like we need to bring play back into our activism we need to we need to fundamentally shift our education system so that so that there's more play in there and as adults we we need to see that play isn't just something that children are doing it should be something that we need to be bringing back into our existence and designing into our cities there's amazing cities around the world who are designing play into the fabric of the cities uh, which i think is really really healthy too Robert, a lot of the research that I do is with children and young people, and it focuses on what really matters to them. And as I heard you talking about longing, it struck me that one of the things that I so often hear from children is their longing for connection, for real and meaningful connection. And you've talked about the ways in which the kind of transition that happened in, in Totnes created and recreated connections. And I'd love to hear more about that, about how those social connections played out and particularly about intergenerational relationships. And I, I'm really interested in that because that's one of the things that children often talk about and say is really important to them. 
But those intergenerational relationships are really difficult to foster when our institutions and our patterns of socialising are all around age-based segregation. So can you tell us what happened when you started to reshape relationships between people in, in Tottenham? Yeah, I mean, I I would also just want to say I, I wouldn't want to put Tottenham up as some kind of a Shangri-La. You know, we're, we're still, there's lots of things that, that don't work necessarily here. But yeah, I mean, I guess... There was really interesting research. There was a there was a, a heat wave in Chicago in the late nineties, I think, where lots of people died. And they did really interesting uh, in Eric Klinenberg's book *Palaces for the People*. He wrote about this that they found that um, the places where the most deaths were didn't necessarily relate to whether relate to whether they were richer or poorer neighborhoods. But it related to the sort of social connectivity within those communities. There are wealthy communities where people stop and talk to each other and keep an eye out for each other. And there are poorer communities where that happens. And it was the places where that had broken down, where the death rate was much higher because people weren't looking out for each other. So this idea of social connection and connectivity is a fundamentally important part of resilience uh, at a social scale. So some of the things we've done in Totnes, I mean, we've done a... Um, we did a project called Transition Streets, which was based on the idea of, well, how do you help? Which is, And this has happened in Australia as well. It's one of the lovely things about the transition movement is when somewhere comes up with a good idea, it can spread and be replicated. Uh, so the idea of Transition Streets was how, how do we help people reduce their energy bills and their water use and and change their behavior what do you do do you send them a dvd through the post i mean nobody really what do you do so the idea of transition streets was that we supported communities on their street to organize a group of between six to ten households who would meet seven times in each other's houses and they had a workbook and we facilitated the first meeting and one week they looked at energy then they looked at water then they looked at transport and stuff like that so when we ran it the first time, 550 households took part in that in that project. And on average, they cut their carbon footprint by about 1.2 tonnes. So they saved themselves about £600 a year. And, and many of those groups carried on meeting afterwards because they enjoyed it so much. And actually met for years and years afterwards and uh, started all kinds of different projects. What was fascinating to me was that afterwards, when they were all surveyed, Nobody mentioned the fact that they had cut their carbon footprint by 1.2 tonnes. Nobody mentioned the money savings. Everybody said, I know my neighbours better. I feel more part of my community. I feel like I belong here. And it meant that then when COVID came and people were trying to organise those kind of mutual support networks on their streets, they already had that infrastructure in place because they had all worked together to do that. So I think things like that are really powerful. Uh, there's lots of things that we've done working with our local school, people going into the local school um, and lots of the different events that we do. We try to bridge across the generations and, and bring different people together. Uh, and one of the big challenges that we have in a place, like in many places in the UK now, is that uh, housing, we have a massive housing crisis and housing, the, the market has completely failed us in terms of housing. And we have a huge, uh, housing has become very, very unaffordable and is one of the remote reasons why most young people leave. So there's lots of projects happening, two key projects happening in Totnes, which are aiming to provide truly affordable housing in community ownership. If we want young people to stay and be part of our communities, we need to be putting that in place in a way that's not going to be just uh, t taken over by the market again. 
Rob, this is an incredible conversation and one that we will continue after a very short break. So listeners, don't go away. We will be back in just a moment. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Rob Hopkins today and it's been an extraordinary conversation so far around imagination. I know both Sharon and I have read your book in the last year or so, Rob, and for both of us we were struck by one particular part. There is a beautiful description in your book of listening to the dawn chorus of birdsong and the sounds of nature when waking and the ways in which that dawn experience can create a richness to everyday life. I'd love you to talk a little bit about the disconnection from nature, which has become a feature, I think, of much contemporary life, particularly in cities, and the way in which this has impacted on the lives that we lead. Are there benefits to reconnection? Yeah, that that part of the book where... Yeah, so for, for, for listeners, there's a, there's a chapter that starts with me going to... Uh, who'd never really consciously listened to the Dawn Chorus before, going to an event near my house where a group of people got up at four o'clock in the morning to be positioned in a particular place for when the birdsong started up. And just how absolutely riveting it was. It's like better than any concert. It was just absolutely spellbinding thing. And I mentioned before about how I feel like we're living in a perfect storm of factors that are deeply injurious to our collective imagination and i think that our disconnection from nature is a really key part of that the people spend more and more time indoors uh, you know and of course there are many people in our society particularly people of color and people from very low income backgrounds who don't necessarily feel very welcome going out from the cities and, and spending time in nature. There's a big movement here in the UK now of people of colour and Muslim people having walking groups to go walking in the countryside together. Uh, and even you know near where I live, there are communities in Cornwall who live a mile or two from the sea, uh, from areas that are hugely popular with, with tourists in the summer, who've never been to the sea where the young people have never actually been and had that had that experience. I think that uh, that having a connection to nature and spending time in nature, uh, that there are many studies about how that how beneficial that is in terms of slowing us, calming us down, and 
helping with our creativity. Albert Einstein always said his his best ideas came to him when he rode his bicycle in the forest. And, uh, you know, that idea that we're somehow going to be able to be imaginative and come up with great ideas, sitting in front of a whiteboard in a room with strip lights and someone tapping the whiteboard with a pen and saying, ideas, people, ideas. You know, that's not, that's not how the human imagination works. We need that kind of slightly daydreamy space, walking outside, observing nature. You know, that one of the things that I do myself alongside the other work that I do is is drawing. I try and I, I went to art school when I was 18. I, it's something I've, I try to keep alive. Uh, and I do drawing and printmaking. And for me, when I'm outside and drawing, that's my meditation practice. When you have to sit and look at something and really look at it in outdoors, particularly like trees or wherever you are, but really, really looking and observing does something to your brain that nothing else does really. So, so uh, yeah, I think there's lots of interesting science, and I pulled some of it together in the book about that, about how nature connection helps our imagination. But I think mostly it's because it gives us space. The imagination needs space, and and what really troubles me at the moment is I think that there are that the, the digital world and video games has produced a generation of young people for whom the online world is so much more interesting than the natural world. And uh, I read recently somewhere where I saw that there was a big, um, one of those massive immersive experience visitor things, which is all like light projections and stuff. Discover the discover the wonder of nature at our at our immersive digital uh, experience. Uh, really, what do you just go for a walk in the park and take a magnifying glass, you know? And uh, so yeah, I I, I feel like. Everything that we can do to make room in our lives for nature and nature connection are only going to be beneficial to our capacity to uh, see things as if they could be otherwise. Rob, that's such a beautiful explanation of, or a beautiful description of what happens when we're in nature. And I think when we do spend time in nature, it also makes us more able to listen to other people, to care for other people. And they're themes that we often talk about on this podcast, you know, themes of care and listening. I wonder if I could invite you to imagine aloud for us what societies might look like and might feel like if we genuinely put care and listening at the centre of what we do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I feel like that thing of stepping into, stepping into 2030 is really important. I'll just say a little bit about that, why that's important, first of all. You know, so, so there's lots of people who talk about and write about utopia. And, you know, so people like myself often get dismissed as, oh, you're just utopian, you know, like as if somehow having the audacity to think that everything that's in front of us is all that could ever possibly be. But I'm, I've bec- I'm much more interested with, with what Amanda Scott calls throughtopian storytelling. So the idea of a throughtopia is to say, actually, it doesn't really matter some great idealistic utopian society a thousand years in the future the stories we need right now are the stories of 2030 2030 is when the climate scientists tell us we need to have shifted the curve and be halfway down uh on the on on um, or further on the push genuinely towards a zero emission society not a net zero uh society so so the stories we need are that are about the people now, today. How did they start? 
Who were they? Where did it begin? What did it look like? Who were those people? What, how did they feel when they started this process? Like in all great sort of stories, like Harry Potter in his cupboard under the stairs, uh, you know, that's kind of where we are now. And it's the process of how did we discover the strength and the, and the connection and the resourcefulness by actually starting. So a lot of the work that I do is about trying to help people to imagine themselves in that 2030 and I'm currently just starting work on a comic book with an amazing Belgian artist which is about myself and another guy traveling to 2030 to make recordings of what 2030 sounds like that we could then bring back again so I feel like I spend quite a lot of my time uh, in 2030 and I feel like it's something the more that we do it it's like a, as it's a muscle that we exercise, the more it comes into focus and almost imagining that world should be a kind of a daily practice. And so for me, when I travel there, I the first thing I always notice is that unlike in 2023, there's now this sort of fragile sense of, I think we might just do this. That kind of hopelessness and despondency that was so prevalent for so many people uh, in 2023 has been replaced by this yeah it's kind of fragile it's one of the reasons why anyone who's seen any of the pictures of this project that we're doing called field recordings from the future which is this about traveling we wear these time travelers costumes to do this which has this silly kind of space helmet and and the idea is it's not to protect us it's to protect the people in 2030 so that we don't sort of pollute what they're doing with our 2023 sort of cynicism and our past splaining and our sort of coming in and going oh that's never going to work you know so so for me when i go there that's the first observation you know the bird song is so much louder the air is so much cleaner there's this shared sense of actually this is this is really interesting and we might just do this so in terms of care i feel like it it, it is a a society where care really runs through everything we, we we've moved away from that sort of sense of precariousness that we saw i think there's a much more compassionate culture now in in terms of uh, migration and people having to move i think a lot of that deeply hostile uh, horrible rhetoric that we saw in the in the mid 2020s around refugees and asylum seekers uh, has been replaced with a much more positive narrative by then because uh, because that was a phenomenon that, that was not going to go away and that we had to f figure a different relationship to. I think, uh, you know, that education is very different by then because education is based on the idea that it's not just about passing tests. It's about becoming rounded, compassionate, imaginative people. So schools are much more democratic. Young people learn to practice democracy from a young age in their education system. Societies are much more equal because we know from work like the book, The Spirit Level, which looks at the impacts of inequality around the world, that the more unequal a society becomes, the more you see an increase in mental illness, uh, physical illness, all the, all the things that as a society that you want the measures for how things are getting better, get worse the more unequal a society becomes. So there's been a move towards society becoming much more equal, which has had a big benefit in terms of mental health and all of that. And also the last thing I would say is that the other thing that you see in 2030 is that we don't, is that the way we think about society and change is much less siloed now so we don't say well there's a housing department over there making housing policy and there's a health department down there making health policy you know we realized by 2030 
that housing policy is health policy because so many people who end up in mental health, when you trace it back, it's because they've got the precariousness due to lack of housing, due to, to you know, all of this stuff is completely intertwined. We know that it costs uh, about sort of... Um, I interviewed somebody on the podcast from the from the US who said we know in the US it costs us eleven thousand dollars a year to house somebody, and it costs us ninety thousand dollars if that person's on the street. You know, so we've taken a we we've started to look at rather than seeing public spending as being spending, it's about investing in the kind of future that we want. So, uh, yeah, I, every every time I go there, I love it. <laughs> I recommend it. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. I, I so love this visioning of the future and then and reflecting on how things change. And I, I've been um, involved in a little bit of climate politics recently, thinking about uh, expanding fossil fuel projects in Australia. And I keep wondering how we will look back on this from 2050 or from 2100. Uh, this idea of throughtopian storytelling is tremendously important and a place where I think we should all be spending some more time. And I'm struck listening to you talking about it. You're raising issues around Guy Standing's uh, or the, the, uh, the notion of the precariat, well uh, described by Guy Standing, who's been on our podcast a couple of times, and you've addressed some of the issues around feminist economists' uh, issues from people like Marilyn Waring. Just recently, we talked to Professor Susan Sell about the nature of 21st century capitalism, the commodification of everything that's considered to have some sort of value. Uh, and we've spoken previously to a number of economists, including Guy Standing and Marilyn Waring. I would love to hear how your or how the economics of 2030 or perhaps beyond might evolve. Uh, what sort of glimmers of hope we can see from your throughtopian future? Well, I think, I think by 2030, economies, there's much more of a focus on, on local economies and on re, redesigning those economies so that money and resources circulate locally as, as many times as possible. And you could already see the seeds of that back in 2023, you know, in, in a city like Preston in the north of England, for example, who have... Uh, I, I think, you know, when people put the word model after the name of your city, you know, you're doing something right. So the Preston model is this idea that as a city council, their aim is to is to maximize the potential of money circulating locally. And uh, it's had huge economic benefits to the city. There are many, many places in France now where I see the local authority breaking the contract that they had with the company Sodexo, who provide all the meals for schools and hospitals and stuff, sort of subpar food for hospitals and schools, uh, and, and instead creating a system where, where that food is grown around the city. And I've been to visit some incredible projects like that. It's happening very, very quickly, actually. I was in uh, Marseille recently. I met the mayor of Marseille, said we're buying land all around the city in order to create a whole new food system for feeding uh, schools and hospitals and universities and public, publicly funded uh, buildings. And there is actually now an international movement of countries who are signing up to taking a different approach, using the, the procurement power of, of, of those meals to, to, to bring about a new kind of an economy. I think that idea just spread into many different areas. I'm part of a project in my town where the community is working to become a developer on an eight-acre 
derelict site in the centre of the town. I think we walked past there uh, when you were here. And the idea with that is that the, that whole development will be in community ownership. It'll borrow money from pension funds over 30 years. It's designed so that every element of, his, of it is generating rental income. So it means that after 30 years, you have a development in the centre of the town generating two or three million pounds every year for the town to decide how it wants to to spend that money. And I keep saying to people, you know, that, that housing estate over there, imagine if they'd done that 30 years ago, how different our approach to the climate emergency, to the housing crisis, to, to, to the mental health crisis would be if we had done that. So, so for me, you know, there are other people you know, Kate Rayworth, Donut Economics, I think will be a fundamental part of how we look at, at, at economics. I think Jason Hickel and the, the degrowth movement have lots of, lots of wisdom to share in terms of that as well. I'm not an economist. I guess what, what I see is, is, is manifestations on the ground already in 2023 that feel like that economy needs to feel like. So it's a much higher degree of community ownership, much more democratic, fundamentally low carbon, in everything that it does. But that element of community ownership and keeping money circulating locally is going to be vitally important to it. And just the last thing I would say is the thing that I love about donut economics and is, is the, and I, if, if anyone, people are listening and haven't read Kate Rayworth's book, Donut Economics, I really recommend it because what it does, and I've seen it again and again in workshops that she's run that I've been in, is it, is it identifies the sweet spot. It says, we can't go out that way because we have to operate within the planetary boundaries. And we can't go in that way because we have to ensure that there is a, a social, foundation which ensures that everybody is able to survive so we're operating in this sweet spot and it was one of the main things i learned researching the book was the imagination loves limits when you put limits around the human imagination we're so much more imaginative it's like if i said tell me a story that's really hard right what from what do you mean but when you do improvisation I, I stuff that you always get given a scenario like okay you're a bus driver you're trying to get home you're really stressed out you just want to get home and watch the telly you're trying to get onto the bus with an enormous cello and uh and you can't find your change in your pocket go and then you've you've got a scenario you've got limits and that's when people are most imaginative so i feel like that that economy is one in which uh the limits are clear but there is a there is but we see that as the opportunity to reimagine everything and we're really excited about that rather than fighting against that Rob, you noted at the start of our conversation that in very many communities in countries around the world, it's communities that have had to take the lead on climate action and transition because governments are just failing to do so. In your imagining of that beautiful place in 2030, which I'm planning to visit very soon, <laughs> what role what role does government play and how have our democracies been reimagined to serve us better? Oh, that's a great question because I feel, you know, with my 2023 head on, certainly in the, U in, in the UK context, I feel like our political system has been so co-opted at this point and so kind of uh neutered in a sense that actually the, the places that i look to for for hope and for action is regional government local government and communities and business working together uh you know there are certainly some countries where where there is inspired leadership on climate but most of it tends to be a bit paralysed. Recently in France, the French Environment Minister published a report about how how is France going to adapt to a four-degree world? Because 
because now it doesn't look like we're going to be able to stay below one and a half degrees. So we should be preparing for the worst. And, you know, how's France going to adapt to a four degree world? It's like, France can't adapt to a four degree world. What are you talking about? It's 1.2 degrees and half the towns in the south of France have run out of water and crops are failing everywhere. You're insane. Like, what? why do we somehow manage to find this capacity to, well, we're going to have to adapt to a four degree world. Like, sorry, you you are politically irresponsible <laughs> get out of office you shouldn't be there so i so for me one of the things that, that gives me a lot of encouragement at the moment is there is a local authority in london in, in camden camden council who were the first local authority to do um to declare a climate emergency the first to do a citizens assembly on climate change and they're also the first one to roll out what they call imagination activist training for all of their staff they just ran the first round and if and they've published an amazing report about it which if people google they can find my friend phoebe tickell designed and, and and taught this course i think this should become very very quickly completely standard in every organization in every local government because we need we need these institutions not to be the ones that are just blocking everything but to be the ones where there are enough people there who are the imagination activists and the ones who are prepared to ask the big bold what-if questions the ones prepared to roll their sleeves up and do things i visit places in france now like in the city of grenoble in france where they've had a green administration now and i'm not I, you know in the work that i do is absolutely not committed linked to any particular political party or political platform but they have a had a kind of ecological administration in grenoble for two terms now they're doing incredible things the public transport is free all the social housing they're building they're building using local materials very very innovative uh, they're doing all this work around food and building a whole new food system for the city to for or like in other places so it's not like we don't know what to do but where's it, is if we have limited time and limited energy and capacity, are we best to focus that on trying to lobby and influence politics at a national level? There are some people who can do that, and there are some people, and I completely, we absolutely need that, and I salute that. But in terms of my own energy and my own activism, I feel like pushing on local and regional government and communities and business to come together and work in new ways is what's going to mean that we can move faster and then start to change the narrative uh, at the national scale. Just to go back to very quickly to the, to the, I mentioned Liège at the beginning where they're building that new food system. You know, I often get that accusation of, yeah, well, you know, this transition stuff, it's all very nice, but you're not going to change anything. Uh, by doing stuff at a community scale, you're just playing around at a community scale. That story in Liège started with a community coming together with a what-if question. What if, in a generation's time, the majority of food eaten in, eaten in Liège came from the land closest to Liège? They spent three or four years just working and building that. They didn't wait for anybody's permission. They just got on with it. And then... Um, and then after a few years, the local, the, the, the local council in the city came to them and said, this is fabulous. How can we help? Tell us what all the blockages are and we'll help get them out of the way. And they now have a really fantastic working relationship together. That model has now spread to six other cities in Belgium. It's now starting to change how policy is made. So there is something about um, just getting on with it that I think is, it has the potential to shift policy at a national scale. And that's what we need to be doing. Imagination activists. So I really like that phrase too. There's a whole heap I've been writing down. 
Uh, and from the ideas of democratic transformation, uh, let's talk a little bit about power. Power, of course, can be harnessed for transformations towards social and ecological justice, and you've just described some superb ways in which that occurs at a local level. But we also know uh, that power is routinely used to exploit and to oppress some. If we're turning communities to imagine a different future, how do we respect those local decisions, the knowledge and expertise, whilst avoiding creating or deepening the patterns of marginalisation and inequity? And I'm wondering how we also can reinforce the, the collaboration of communities, which you so beautifully articulated, against those powerful national or multinational uh, power structures, which I think have worked against this sort of change. Yeah, I mean, I wish I knew. I mean, it, it, it is, you know, it's, it, it's the, the sobering part with all of this is you know we've we've been talking about the transition movement and you know started in 2006 and spread to 50 countries around the world and has led to this incredible flourishing of kind of community grassroots activism and and projects on the ground the reality is 30 percent of all the co2 ever released by humanity in its history has been released in the years since we started the transition movement you know we, we are up against something which is so well-funded and which uh, owns and controls many politicians and media channels and outlets for conversation, you know, for, that sort of shapes public thinking. And, you know, we're seeing it at the moment, and I'm sure you're having it in Australia as well, this very well-funded, very well-resourced pushback against ideas around net zero, you know, arguing that, that, that measures relatively moderate measures about um reducing traffic uh in in cities is somehow some sort of uh a crime against humanity um so you know the, i guess my my sense has always been you know we, we need different things you know we absolutely need the kind of activism that extinction rebellion just stop oil uh the sunrise movement 350.org people much braver than me who are prepared to put their bodies on the line and get in the way and really make the fossil fuel oil and gas industry completely socially unacceptable whether through the divestment movement through shareholder activism uh, you know we have to shut down the oil and gas industry within the next five or ten years because it's the most it's the most out of control psychopathic industry on the planet and it has so so we need we absolutely need that but at the same time we need to be building what comes next without waiting for permission and telling those stories and just getting on with it like in Liège like in all these different places we need to be amplifying the stories of where all this stuff already exists I mentioned earlier on the, the the project with the recordings. You know, I'm doing this project called Field Recordings from the Future, where my where I go to visit places that already sound like that future needs to sound like, and I make recordings there. And then I work with this amazing young ele ambient electronic music artist who makes these beautiful pieces of music with all the field recordings in. And my brief to him was that when you listen to them, they should generate a nostalgia for the future. And and I feel like we need to be doing that kind of work alongside that because we need to we need to take away those those companies only exist because they have the cultural legitimacy to do so and we give them the kind of permission to operate 
and and I feel like we need to shift the story so that they become just more and more excluded and isolated. And you kind of see it beginning now in the UK with campaigns against fossil fuel companies uh, funding museums and and things like that. You know, it's like you have no place here at all. So yeah, I, I we're up against something which is, you know, here in the UK there is a one of the main voice pieces mouthpieces pushing this kind of anti-net zero rhetoric is a thing called gb news which is a very right-wing nigel farage tv station which was given 60 million pounds to get started by some right-wing benefactors and oil and gas company people we don't have that the renewable energy industry doesn't give us millions and millions of pounds to start transition tv stations you know we need to be smarter and find other ways to do it but we're up against something that's very powerful and we need to find creative ways to to to, to work around that i think but there's but but i would just say one thing that everybody is asking that question you know, I, I, I was up at the big Extinction Rebellion thing up in London. I do stuff with, I meet with people who are involved in Just Stop Oil. I do stuff with people involved in transition and community renewables. Everybody is saying, like, what next? What should we be doing next? You know, and so the bit that I always come in with is, well, whatever we do, it has to create longing in our shared collective narrative about where we go next. Because if it doesn't create that longing, it's just not going to gain any kind of traction. Oh, Rob, I, I love that idea of longing for something better, you know, longing for what the world could be, and perhaps longing for what it is we pass on to our children, you know, longing for a better future for them. Th- this has been such a remarkable conversation. It's one that I know both Anna Greta and I could continue for, for many hours, but um, we, we do need to wrap up and we need to let you get on with your day in the UK. As we do bring this conversation to a close, can I ask you, what kinds of questions do we need to start asking ourselves and each other if we're to begin both conversations and action for different and better futures? What are the questions we really need to ask? I I think we need to get much better at questions that start with the words, what if? When I do workshops with people, we spend a lot of time around the art of a good what if question and the good what if question. And I, I, I always try to encourage people to make them as specific as possible. Not like what if everybody in the world loved each other? It's like, well, that's yeah, but that's not that helpful. You know, a good what if question is like in Alice in Wonderland where she's trying to get into the where she can where she's too big to get through the door into the garden but she can look through and she can see the most beautiful beautiful garden and she really wants to get there she's the longing to get into the garden is really really strong and then that's what she dedicates herself to figuring out how she's going to do that and a good what if question does that you know i mentioned liege that question what if in a generation's time the majority of food eaten in the city came from the land closest to that city you know you see within that question around that question they raised 5 million euros of investment from the people in the city to start 27 new cooperatives in that city. They started two cooperative vineyards, a brewery, uh, four shops in the centre of the city, a, a, a whole logistics food hub on the centre, on the edge of the town, or so on and so on. You know, because so many people heard that question and were like, yeah, I want to see that. And actually, I've got a bit of, I've got a bit of the response to that. And when we can create the good spaces where people can come together to explore those what-if questions together, that's when things get really, really exciting for me. So I feel like 
I feel like that's a muscle that we need to be learning from 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 quite young. And that if we if we go if we experience an education system where not only are we thinking of those what if questions, but we're seeing them then manifesting around us. That's when it gets really exciting, like in Bologna in Italy, where they have this civic imagination office, where people are asked to come up with what if questions, and then the municipality will sit with them and go, okay, let's make those ones a reality. We can do this, you can do that, let's make it happen. And if we can start to build that sense of people thinking, well, we imagined that, and it happened. So what else could we imagine? And then and then you get this kind of uh, positive like tipping point around imagination, then that's when I think things will get really exciting. Rob Hopkins, sometimes I wonder if we might change the world one conversation at a time. And today is one of those conversations. It's been such a wonderful chat with you. I remember our time together in Totnes and I'm so glad we had an opportunity to reconnect. I know our audience will want you back and Sharon and I would love to have you back on the pod at some point in the future. Thank you so much for your generous and inspired storytelling today. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, and I would love to do that again. Yeah, anytime. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Listeners, that really was the most extraordinary conversation. And I hope that it has all of you thinking about the art of what a good what if question might be. We really look forward to continuing these ideas and discussions over the weeks, months and years ahead. But for now, This podcast is produced by the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed on the Crawford LinkedIn account. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about the podcast. We love hearing from you, our audience. So do reach out to us on Twitter at ANU Crawford or through the Crawford School of Public Policy LinkedIn page. If you have those what-if questions, please do share them with us. That's all we have time for this episode. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we look forward to seeing you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.